I've always helped out with the trails from day one and to be able to do that and make a, you know, make a living doing it has been, again, I consider myself pretty fortunate. You know, I I get to, I look forward to going to work almost every day. Welcome to Trail Effect. I am your host, Josh Blom. Trail Effect is a show that dives into the stories behind trails, the communities that embrace trails, and the people who rely on trails as a way of life. The goal of this show is to turn the stories you will hear from our guests into useful knowledge that can be applied to your community while providing some entertaining and inspirational content. Guests on Trail Effect include trail builders, board members, community leaders, volunteers, and regular people who really enjoy trails. For episode 143, we have Vance McCaw. Vance is the trail boss at Trek Trails in Waterloo, Wisconsin, home of the Trek headquarters. Vance has had a very diverse work history at Trek, including time with the factory race team and traveling with the C3 project for filming and events. Now Vance spends his days digging outside in the dirt for Trek Trails. Cooley Creative is the title sponsor for this episode. They design and build custom websites, as well as help companies with branding, photography, and e-commerce. Cooley Creative was started in Wisconsin, but is now based out of Bend, Oregon. Jared from Cooley Creative is a friend of mine. We've traveled together on multiple mountain bike trips, and sometimes he sends it. For more information about Cooley Creative, head on over to www.dojustsendit.com. Yes, that's right, www.dojustsendit will get you to the Cooley Creative website, so check it out. A huge thank you goes out to the multiple people who have placed orders for Cattle Mountain Apparel and Trail One components. This support definitely does not go unnoticed. I hope you are all enjoying the products that have been ordered. When you use the links found under the affiliate section at the Trail Effect website, a portion of the proceeds will help fund the Trail Effect podcast. Bonus, use the code TRAILPOD when checking out for a 20% discount on all Kettle Mountain Apparel and Trail One components. Now on to the Trail Effect with Vance McCaw. Here we are today on Trail Effect. I have the trail boss for truck trails at Waterloo. Vance McCaw, and Vance has got a very storied history of bikes and especially bikes and how they're related to track and trail. So how's it going today, Vance? It's going good. It's uh, really, really warm and humid today. It's like 98 degrees and 98% humidity. So it's a hot and wet day. Yeah, it's a, a good day to not be digging. Air conditioning feels really good right now. I went on a road ride at, at 5.30 this morning and I got home and I, didn't, I couldn't tell if I had just gotten out of a pool or if I had gone for a ride. Right on, right on. It's that time of year. Let's get into your backstory and how you got into the world of bikes and then ultimately trails. Okay, uh, so going way back, uh, I was a BMX Grom back in the late 70s, early 80s, I guess. Always was into bicycles. I was a kid that fixed all the kids all the other kids' bikes in the neighborhood. You had a flat tire, your handlebars got loose, you brought it to Vance's house. Ten years later, I finally started working in a bike shop. I kind of, for most people, you know, they start working at a bike shop at 16. I think I was more like 24. Working at a bike shop in uh, Cedar Falls, Iowa. My good friend Josh Shively taught me how to fix bikes and a lot about how to ride bikes. And about 10 years after that, I ended up Moving to Wisconsin to work for Trek, thought, hey, if I'm going to do this bike thing, I should maybe try to do it somewhere I can have health insurance and retirement and all that stuff. So uh, I've been at Trek now for 21 years, 
uh, started off working at the West side truck store as like the service department manager, uh, moved out to, uh, Waterloo to the headquarters, did like customer service, tech support, you know, on the phone stuff for a few years, eventually moved into uh, product development. I was the mountain bike assistant product manager for, I don't know, I'll say five years, helped develop, you know, helped organize and develop the, you know, back when we were doing, first got into ABP and full floater, you know, those suspension designs were around for quite a while in the, in the track lineup. Got to travel a bit with those things, um, helped develop, or I shouldn't say develop, but uh, that was when we launched what is, you know, was looks like a session, that whole thing. Uh, so the looks like a session thing was, you know, that was one of the things that I got to help out on. Anyway, product department for five or so years. And then I moved into the race shop. The uh, They were looking for someone to help out the C3 team, which at that point was uh, Brandon Semina, Cam McCall. I think Ryan Howard joined us shortly thereafter. A few other people. Greg Watts was kind of loosely involved with that. He was a Gary Fisher rider, but uh, he was under the same umbrella. Anyway, did the did the race shop thing, traveled with C3 to some of the Crankworks events, got to go on some of their film trips. I was in New Zealand with them for the filming of Not Bad for like a three-week stint, which was pretty rad. And then uh, the travel just got to be a bit much for my family life. So now I've been the trail guy for... Uh, seven or eight years now, something like that. Yeah, it's kept me busy pretty much. I, I miss the traveling a little bit. Not going to lie about that. <laughs> Walking away from the C3 team boys was difficult, to say the least. But I, I still get to talk to them every once in a while. I, I forget what exactly happened. I think it was my 45th birthday. We were out building trails, building a big jump, and... uh Seminoc and our dog called from Seminoc's place up in up on uh, Vancouver Island. <laughs> they were all cracking beers over the phone with me, so it was, you know, good to stay connected to those guys a little bit. It's a pretty amazing group of people to say the least. So, but yeah, now I'm uh, now I just dig in the dirt, throw things around. Let's back up to your product development days. Were you on the front lines of going from 26 inch wheels to 29 inch wheels? when that was happening or was that, or were you already into the C3 project by then? So yes and no, uh, back in the day before 27.5 was a thing, we did bikes called the 69ers. So 26 inch rear, 29 inch front. That was a Travis Brown brainchild uh, thing, which was pretty cool. It was a great idea. They rode pretty nice. They just weren't dialed, you know? So we kind of had that going on beforehand. Once we moved into 27.5 wheels, I'm going to say that's uh, right around the time when I was moving into the race shop. So uh, I was still helping out with all the different mountain bike teams. So the you, we weren't just we weren't just doing the C3 team. We we're also helping out with the cross country team and the downhill team because it's all you know it's a it's a pretty small group of people in the race shop, and you've got a pretty wide audience of who all you're trying to support with products. So if you're a mountain bike guy, you're helping out with a little bit of everything. My main focus was the C3 team, but that's, that is around the time when we were starting to put people on 0.75, you know, 29 was already a thing before that. Some of the, some of the riders really embraced the 29 inch thing. 
the taller riders mostly. And then the shorter riders, some of them we could fit on the 29 inch bike and some of them we couldn't. I think of someone like uh, Emily Batty, for example, little bitty thing, you know, she's not tall. Trying to get her to fit onto a 29 inch bike was uh, a challenge. That was, you know, when we first started doing the crazy downward slope, you, you take a, a crazy rise stem and flip it upside down to try to get them into position. It's like, oh yeah, that'll actually work. And uh, it, it took a little bit of doing, but yeah, it all worked out. You know, it's uh, everybody had their own little nuances and what worked and what didn't work. But uh, in the long run, they all seemed to enjoy it. The, even the C3 guys, you know, they were hardcore 26 fanatics. And they, some of them still are to a certain extent. But uh, those guys have all ridden 29-inch wheeled bicycles now. And they, for the most part, they enjoy them, you know. They, they might not want to use them for competition. But that's what they ride. Big wheels, you can't deny it. Yeah, for sure. And one of the things that, that stuck out to me when I was interviewing Ryan Howard or our dog is that, you know, he had, we talked about kind of the evolution of, of mountain biking to where they are today or mountain bikes of to where they are today. And, you know, he had made the comment, he's like, yeah, I was 26 inch for life. And then, you know, 29ers came out and geometry is a lot more dialed than it was, you know, when they first came out. And now, you know, he said that his daily driver is a slash. And so that's a, that's a good example of that evolution to from 26 to 29. Yep. I would agree. I think, I think, Almost everybody in the industry, whether they want to or not, has been <laughs> not really forced to, but they've ridden a 29-inch capable bike. And it's, yeah, bikes have gotten so much better. They have evolved so much in the last, whatever, eight or 10 years, you want to call it. When, when I first started working at Trek, we didn't have a decent trail bike. And we made things work. I can remember, you know, taking my front shifter off, whatever, 12 or 15 years ago. I'm like, I don't need a front derailleur. I need some, some way to simplify this thing. You know, I'm just bashing up chain rings anyway. So the single, you know, the, the one by drivetrain in my mind was a pretty huge thing, but the, but the wheel size, like you go get back on a 26 inch wheeled bike. I've still got a Y bike in my basement, which I get out once in a while. And that thing was dialed you know, 20 years ago and you ride it now. It's like, Oh my gosh, this is what I spent countless hours riding. And now I don't even want to, I don't even want to pedal it around the neighborhood, you know? Yeah. It's crazy to think that, you know, as bikes got dialed, trails got more dialed too. And you look back at what we rode and what we rode that stuff on. It's kind of crazy that we were able to do what we did. Agreed. Agreed. A lot of, you know, a lot of just rake and ride type stuff back in the day, but I think as people started to travel more and see like, oh, hey, these guys built this thing over here. Check this out. And then you get home and you get your shovels out and like you try to emulate that, you know, it's like I saw this thing. I was up over in this spot and made this thing that comes up out of the ground and you, you know, it's only 12 inches wide and it's eight feet in the air and you can ride on this thing. It's not for everybody, obviously, but some stuff was stupid. But for the most part, we all learn from each other. It's a good thing. Well, this is going to tie back into the C3 project because Andrew Shandro is uh, like the C3 manager, if I remember correctly. Correct. And it wasn't long after my first trip to Copper Harbor ever 
and I got to see what I would consider oh, the first flow trail that I ever saw, which I didn't even know flow trail was a thing. This would have been back in 2011, but it wasn't long after that, that Andrew shot a video with Trek up in Copper Harbor, just talking about that region. I don't know if you were on, on site for that, but you know, just the way trails have gone since then to now has been pretty incredible. Correct. Yes. Um, yeah, I, ironically, I, I wasn't, um, I wasn't invited to that photo video shoot, uh, that happened, but I happened to be there that weekend cause they did it on a trails fest weekend or something. I forget what it was. And, um, yeah, it's Copper Harbor for us Midwesterners. Like that's pretty legit stuff. When I first started traveling to ride Marquette, Michigan, Copper Harbor, Michigan, those were two of the places that I went to that were like, holy crap. You know, I, the first time I went to Marquette was right after the Monster Park competition, which would have been, that would have like predated the Crankworks type stuff. And uh, it was right after I got married. And uh, my poor wife was like, you want to go where? And uh, I drug her up to Marquette, Michigan. And um, it rained all week, of course. But we got to go and see where the Monster Park thing had happened, whatever, a month or two previous to that. And uh, seeing the stuff that those guys rode off of, and some of them back then even rode it on hardtails, you know, 20-foot drop, just like, oh, my gosh. Yeah, it's interesting that you, brought, that you brought up Marquette, and we're talking about C3, because I just watched a, a video yesterday while I was eating breakfast, a Brandon Semenek video. And oh, it was, yeah. It was the video that ju- I think it was just released in the last week, if not a couple of days, where it kind of shows, you know, his split, I guess, what, what's the best way? I don't want to say split personality, but split disciplines in terms of like, now he's racing rally cars and having to go to Red Bull Rampage. And last year when this was filmed, it was, it was filmed over the rally car season, which happened to end almost on the exact same dates as Red Bull Rampage. And it talked about how he had to go from Marquette, Michigan to Red Bull Rampage in, in Utah, you know, via flight. And I was just thinking to myself, I'm like, man, I wonder... When Brandon was in Marquette, if he, you know, obviously he was a lot younger when, if, you know, he's probably a kid when, when the whole Monster Jam thing or Monster Series came out at Marquette Mountain. And I think that would have been in the late nineties, if I'm not mistaken, you would know for sure since you got married right then. And those dates obviously stick out in your mind. But I wonder if he thought about that, that he's racing rally cars in a place that mountain biking is so prevalent and iconic and in the Midwest. Yeah, that's for sure. I don't know how they settled on Marquette. When I went up there, I mean, that was 19 years ago is when I got married. So, um, you know, that was like, I don't know if they did more than one of those events in Marquette, but the, you know, just, just to com- compare it to how it is today, I'm also, we, we do quite a bit with NICA and the NICA riders that come down to compete that are from the Marquette area. Holy cow. It's like the kids from Whistler, you know, it's that same sort of they just learn at such a faster progression level than, you know, it's like you go to Whistler and, and you get passed by these nine to 11 year old kids, you know, they make you look like a chump. And uh, it's kind of similar with these Marquette kids, you know, they just really shred. It's amazing. And more and more people from this area go up there to ride and, you know, people are, everybody's learning at a faster rate now, of course, but, um, but yeah, I think, you know, Back those Monster Jam things, back to the Seminuk thing, uh, you know, he wouldn't he wouldn't have participated in any of that kind of thing. That was way before his time. But um, 
he, you know, he's one of those guys that would he, if he were, if the timeline were to line up and he would have showed up at an event like that, I'm, I'm sure that he would have uh, raised some eyebrows to say the least, you know, that's pretty amazing on a bike. Well, and then he clinched the series for the, for rally car racing at that venue. And he's right. pretty much a rookie at that. Yeah. He's that whole rally thing is kind of new to him, but he's, he's one of those rare souls that, uh, you know, people use the term cat like reflexes and that's him. You know, I've seen people half of the half of rampage is being able to crash and not hurt yourself. And the, the dirt out there is really unusual. It's very soft, but there's rocks underneath, you know, but I've seen guys take tumbles and get back up and they're fine the next day. I saw him do a little stumble and like fall off the edge of this cliff. And I thought for sure he was just going to be like, Oh geez. And somehow he twisted around in midair, you know, like, and landed on his feet and just walked away super calm. No big deal. Got on his bike and was riding, you know, 12 minutes later, no big deal. We're good. Yeah. That's, if, if it would have been you or I falling off of that thing, we'd still be laying there, you know? <laughs> yeah, like literally. <laughs> Let's get back yeah. into your C3 days and maybe you could talk about a couple, you know, stories that stick out in your mind from traveling, you know, especially, you know, during some of the filming and that, because there's obviously been some very iconic films that have came out of those days and still to this day, that's, I mean, it's such a good crew of riders that are pushing the progression of what we see on, on the screen. Right. Well, I mean... <laughs> our dog is still fresh in my mind and i'm gonna say you you haven't lived until you've seen our dog shredding on rollerblades um <laughs> they did uh, a video back in the optos days and i forget what it's called but I, I own it it's at home and uh our dog was a hockey player growing up so he transitioned to rollerblades obviously quite well <laughs> and uh some of the opening segments of the video are him slashing around on rollerblades um being a complete little punk you know he's got the full outfit on um entertaining to say the least <laughs> traveling with those guys you know meeting them for the first time meeting i met seminuk and mccall i think right around the same time at a, a sea otter event delivered bikes to them and uh they were both you know at that point seminuk was probably i don't know he didn't have a driver's license yet so we'll, we'll just say he was 15 and cam's probably 18 at this point i think he was freshly out of high school and uh they were you know you show up with a couple of shiny bikes that we just had made and that, at that point in time it was the what is the modern day ticket frame so we paint these frames they're you know we paint them up from scratch well heck we got to put some kind of a paint job on them right so we might as well make them look cool while we're at it so at that point i forget what uh cam's what color cam's bike was but I painted the frames and the wheels to match. So say Cam's bike was black with red lettering, and then I painted the rims red to match. And Seminuk's bike was like a bright orange with yellow lettering and then yellow rims to match. And that's the first day that I learned whenever you paint wheels for these guys, you don't paint two wheels, you paint three or four. Because <laughs> we won't go into a photo shoot and right off the bat, Cam McCall folds up a front wheel, which I don't know when the last time you folded up a front wheel was, but Cam was just like, oh, I haven't done that in four years. 
So there goes the cool painted front wheel for our wonderful photo shoot. <laughs> Was that the precursor to uh, Project One, but also like what's now become a really awesome like series of bikes that gets painted for this C3 project? So the C3 paint thing, it kind of started off with those two ticket frames because those were custom-made frames. We welded them up. You know, we got raw aluminum tubes welded up in-house. And uh, we got to put some sort of paint on them. You might as well make them look cool, right? What What's the use of having these custom bikes if you make them look normal, right? You don't want a, a black or a white bike. Let's put some flashy paint on it, right? These guys are doing backflips and tail whips. And let's, you know, let's make something that grabs your attention. Project One has been a thing for... Project One has been around longer than I've been at Trek. So we were able to draw some ideas from that as far as like certain colors that we like. But a lot of the guys, once once we kind of got into the swing of things, those guys, will, like Brandon especially, he used to send me images or send it to the painter, really, of a, a car or uh, something that was his inspiration, you know? Um, a background, you know, sometimes it was an animal. Uh, one year we did, we all let them do pick up, pick their, uh, their spirit animal, so to speak. <laughs> like Shandro did a bear. Cause that's like the Canadian bear, you know, I think we did a uh, camel calls with some sort of a bird it had wings on it. Uh, Seminex. I don't remember what he had, maybe like a tiger or something. Renee Wildhaber had a snow leopard. Uh, that was like a 20, in that, in that time, that would have been like a still 26 inch wheels. So that was like a 26 inch slash, if you remember those. So that was like a 160 travel bike. I think those had 26 inch wheels, still had a front derailleur, but dropper posts were first kind of coming into it, you know. But we, we just, you know, we let them get a little crazy with their artistic side and it turned out fa fantastically. We had some super cool bikes yeah that was one thing that our dog you know brought up kind of continuously through our conversation was you know how he's never gotten rid of a custom painted bike that that trek has made for him nor will he ever get rid of a custom painted bike that that trek has painted for him right right he's pretty uh i think cam mccall could probably say a pretty similar thing i know seminick lets some of his stuff go but he's usually hooking hooking up his buddies or someone's doing a favor or doing some work for him. But uh, I remember the first ticket that I painted for Ryan Howard, it came out, uh, we were trying to go for this kind of funky green color and it came out this horrible pea soup green. And uh, I was just like, Oh no, this is like, we got to redo this. This is horrible. And our paint guy, Eric was like, Oh no, what, what do you like? Let me, uh, so we put like a clear coat that was kind of had some blue in it or something. I forget exactly what it was. And he took that, took that pea soup green and turned it into this crazy deep forest green. And it looked, it was amazing. I remember when Ryan, when I handed it to him, where it was the opening of Ray's in Milwaukee. And I, you know, I was going to just bring the frame, but I ended up putting the whole bike together. And I stashed it in a room and I brought him over and I opened the door and brought it out and like he literally didn't say anything for 10 seconds, you know? And, uh, to me, that was just, you know, I'll never forget that, you know? And it was a super awesome looking bike. It was, it was a complete screw up. And then Eric Heff went and 
did a little magic to it and all of a sudden it looked amazing. I mean, I know I've, I've seen a lot of, you know, obviously like Ryan Howard and others put those things on Instagram and whatnot, but also just seeing like project one bikes that come through truck in person have always been so, so good, you know, and I don't know of, I don't know of any other companies that do that for customers. I mean, you see if it's a world championships or something, there's always like custom painted one-off bikes for their riders, but you don't see it regular. I don't think in the industry, do you? Uh, I'm honestly not sure about that. I know it's something that we've always done and promoted. I, I would assume that there's other companies that will give you color choices, but I don't think they have the, the selection and the depth of product that we would offer. You know, we've been doing project one bikes for, like I said, I've been at Trek for 21 years and they, I can remember at the shop I worked at before I moved up here, getting a project one bike down there. And, uh, so, I mean, we've, I'm sure we've been, it's been around for something like 22, 23 years. I'm, I'm not really sure the number on that, but we've been doing it a long time. Yeah. Well, this is, uh, this is where we're going to start the drinking portion game of a drinking game portion of, of this podcast. I'm not drinking. You're not drinking. It's mid, middle of the day, but I'm going to say how many times we can say Trek trails. Somebody has to like turn this into a drinking game. Cause we're going to say Trek trails a lot. How's that sound? That's reasonable. I mean, we are in Wisconsin. It's, uh, yeah. Go for it. I got, I got, I got some water here. I'll, I'll put some notches in my bench and we'll catch up tonight. <laughs> Sounds good. Well, let's fast forward to now. You know, you've, you transitioned into your role as the trail boss. I don't know if that's officially your title. That's what I'm calling you for this show. But you're, you're, you're the trail boss at Trek Trails or Trek Trails at Waterloo, which is also Trek HQ or headquarters. Let's kind of talk about that transition. What prompted the transition aside from travel that you already alluded to and, you know, kind of what you've learned to rolling into that transition. Right on. So, uh, the Trek trails have been around for, uh, I'm going to round it off and say 18 years. Um, if we had got some permission from a neighbor, they are literally less than a mile from the front door of Trek HQ. There's a few guys from Trek that used to run back on this property that and we talked to the owners and kind of worked out a deal like, hey, what do you think about us building some bike trails back here? So kind of worked it all out. We wrote up a contract with them. You know, they, they didn't want to get, you know, they don't, they don't want a thousand people out there. You know, we got a pretty limited group here at Trek. So it's private property, private trails. The first year we just built it all. Everything was built by hand. And it was to be able to ride the trails, you had to work the trails. So we had, there was uh, three or four of us that were kind of the main main people in charge. Uh, one guy in particular kind of spearheaded it all. And um, you'd come out and you'd check in. And once you had accrued six or eight hours of volunteer time, you got the okay, you got the cool guy pass. And then you could come out and ride. Well, even with 50 people building trails, when you're working with hoes and shovels, you only get so far in a year. So we've quickly figured out that if we want to actually have more than two miles of trails, we need to hire this out. So we talked to the people at Emba, and uh, you know, back then was uh, Emba did more trail building. Nowadays, Emba is more of an advocacy group, right? But back then, uh, we got hooked up with. Uh, I think it was. I think it was already called trail solutions back then i'm not exactly sure anyway we hire a group to come up we end up with this guy Dwayne barati and he came up and worked for 
a summer and, and I, I might be wrong on dates here exactly, but he worked a summer and then he went back. He was from Texas, came up again. And uh, I think we had scheduled him to work for like five or six months for us. Well, literally like two days after he gets here, he falls off a teeter totter and breaks his, I'm going to say collarbone, collarbone or arm, something breaks himself off. So he's out of action for a while. Um, Anyway, we get some other people that come in, uh, build a few more trails. We end up hiring Dwayne full time for, I think he was around for five years, something like that, maybe maybe six years. And Dwayne built a lot of our um, modern single track. We had to, you know, we were just hacking away a bunch of employees. You know, we had gone to like Imba Trail Building School, but uh, we didn't know a whole lot about controlling the flow of water and you know, how steep is too steep and, you know, how wide does, how wide of a path between trees do you need? You know, turns out three feet is really not enough. You gotta, you know, you need to allow yourself some space. Anyway, while Dwayne was here, we went from just leasing property from our neighbors. It was about, it's about 150 acres. Then track purchased uh, about 90 acres right next door to the neighboring spot. So altogether, you know, we're talking 250 acres, basically. And we've got, as of today, we've got about 18 miles of trail. Most of it is like blue trail, intermediate stuff. We've got two dedicated green trails, quite flat and easy for our, our beginner people. On the blue trails, almost every feature has a ride around of some sort. And then we've got a couple of black trails, which the only reason they're black is uh, they have gap jumps on them. You know, we're, we're, we work with a matter of like our vertical here is, I don't know, it's 123 feet or something silly like that. It's, it's not much, <laughs> not much up and down, but we do a lot of back and forth and we, you know, we make the most out of what we got. So Dwayne pretty much established the majority of the single track. Um, We've added a little bit to it over the years. And then we had a guy, uh, Chad Landowski, who was the trail boss for three years, maybe. And he has his own trail building company now. Um, forgetting the name of the of the company. being a, Currently, Traction Trail Works is his latest go. rendition of it. There you go. So you know Chad as well. I do. So anyway, yep. So uh, Chad was around for about three years. He went off on his own, and um, that just kind of happened to coincide with my time in the race shop, you know, just the too much travel. And so I've been doing it now for, whatever, seven or eight years. And, uh, you know, we haven't really built a lot of new stuff. Um, we've tried to improve on what's there, fix a lot of uh, rainwater erosion issues. And uh, just in this past year, we built a lodge that we're calling it that's uh kind of a meeting space but it's a huge um it's you know self-sustaining it's geothermal and solar you know it's got a a carbon neutral footprint um and it's just a fantastic little zone to hang out we also built a we had rock solid come in and build us a proper pump track uh with a chip seal surface um so all that that's all brand new um that's only been open for two and a half three months now so that's all very fresh it's it's just a lot of little things that make the trails 
in my mind, better than what they used to be. Just try to keep on improving it and make it better and better. It's uh, it's no Whistler, you know. It's uh, it's no Marquette, but it's pretty darn good for around here. And with me out there, and uh, in, in the in the summertime, I get interns. So like this past summer, for example, five interns. You get five people working on trails. You can get a lot of stuff done in the summer. Pretty pretty awesome. Yeah, and I I like how you led into this part of the conversation with we realized very quickly that we could only build so many miles or so many feet of trail, you know, as basically as volunteers. Because right. that's the I think that's the thing that a lot of trail clubs run into as well. Like, you know, you have these these grand ambitions to like build out whatever trail network and then you realize it's happening, you know, after work hours, you know, you can only do so many hours a day. And then, you know, eventually that tra- hopefully that transitions into you know, getting stuff professionally built because, you know, they're, they're building while the people that would have been volunteering are, are working as well. Right. Yeah. It's, you know, the difference between having 10 people with rakes and shovels and having one skilled operator can't even compare the two. You know, you get someone on a, even just a small excavator moving dirt and then having somebody come along afterwards and kind of tidying things up. You can move things along really quickly, especially if you are lucky enough to have someone that really knows what they're doing in an excavator. That's it's amazing to watch people do their thing, you know, to watch someone like, you know, Aaron Rodgers or, you know, Chad Landowski, uh, Jeremy Whitek, all people that have come out here and done helped us, you know, do work out here to watch those guys in a machine. It's pretty fantastic. Yeah. Or Niels. I know, you know, Niels. Yep, Niels, Niels was here for the pump track. It's it's an opportunity for me to learn from people like that, you know? Yeah, Niels was in the cross back in 2018 and 2019. He built our gravity trails for, up, for us here in the cross. And to watch him put an excavator, especially into some of the steeper ravines and stuff, like if he was going to like source a rock for, for a feature. Right. You, you don't, you'd shake your head wondering how that thing isn't on its side. Yeah, well, yeah, it's... Something like that, you, you know, he's driving this, whatever, six or 8,000 pound machine and you say, oh, I want to pick up that rock that's over there through this ditch that's 15 feet deep and 10 feet wide. And for them to be able to maneuver their machine over there and grab it is pretty impressive. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the venue in terms of some of the limitations because we, you, you kind of went in, into it a little bit at the beginning, but it, it is not a venue that's open to the public for obvious reasons, you know, it's a, it is a private trail system. Um, but it does have sometimes when it is open, when it's, when there's an event associated with it, let's get into that stuff a little bit. Right. So, um, the, uh, as far as it being, yes, it's a, it's a private trail system. It's considered a benefit for our employees. We use a product testing, it's employees, track employees and our guests. We open it up a couple of times a year for races. We host a Wars race, which is the Wisconsin Off-Road Series, and we host a the Wisconsin NICA State Championships, which is at the end of October this year. It usually is at the end of October. For those races, we open up the trails for the public only to the extent that they can ride the course, the race course, as it's prescribed. Uh, you can't come out and ride the jumpy trails. Um, if you, you know, 
I don't kick people out a lot. <laughs> we don't have too many poachers go out there. We have trail cameras and, you know, I've caught people jump in the fence and, you know, it's politely escort them to the front and say, like, hey, you just can't ride here, you know. Sometimes people will reach out to me uh, and, you know, asking me if, hey, I'm, I got a bachelor party. I want to bring my bros out. And, you know, we just we just don't do that sort of thing. If you know somebody from Trek and you got a connection that way, then great. But uh, other than that, not so much, you know. It's a really nice playground. I love to share it with people, but it's it's not something that we just let anybody come out and do their thing. It's just, you know, the world today is a lot of liability involved and uh we got to we got to make sure people are safe, you know. Property itself is also kind of a I'm I'm obviously biased, but it's it's freaking beautiful. You know, we've planted thousands of trees. We did a crazy prairie restoration product uh, project you know we've got uh of that 90 acres that we purchased probably at least 50 of it is all restored to prairie and then we've got a few trails going through it it's really nice you know it, it's uh like i said it, we consider it an employee benefit and it's it's great you come out on the weekend with your family uh bring your dog whatever go ride your bike we got a bunch of different, you know, picnic areas and fire pits. And it's it's like going to a nice private uh, state park or something along those lines. With that, we're going to say Trek Trails again. Because <laughs> Trek Trails have also expanded beyond Waterloo. Maybe we could talk about, you know, what at least the knowledge you have within the company of how the importance that Trek actually puts on trails in, in not only in the community of Waterloo, but literally across the country. Right on. So I think that's kind of a kind of had a snowball effect, you know. Uh, again, going back to 20 years ago when I started working at Trek, Trek was not a mountain bike company. It was for sure a road back bike company that we had mountain bikes, and they were okay. But um, having these trails right outside of our door allowed us to recruit more hardcore mountain bikers, from engineers to designers, all those things. The closest place we had to ride from here was 30 minutes to an hour away. If you're going to come work a track and want to go ride your mountain bike, you had to travel a little bit. To, you couldn't just ride at work, you know. You could go ride street, <laughs> do some wheelies around Waterloo, but it, you couldn't you couldn't really get on trail. So by having these trails to allow us to help draw in a little more talent, our mountain bike game has gone through the roof in the last 20 years i've ridden it all and i can tell you from a you know from a first-hand user standpoint the bikes are just amazing now and especially when you compare them to the stuff we had 20 years ago that culture i feel has spread throughout trek so a lot of these other places that we're building trek trails at cable wisconsin uh there's already a, a pretty good mountain bike culture up there it's a it's some place that we just saw a opportunity to invest in the trails and they've done it. Um, there's, there's other places. I think there's some in Arizona. I forget where all, I think there's a few along the East coast. A lot of those are a Trek owned store, which owned also owns some property or has access to some property. And we've developed that into, you know, through a financial investment We've helped them develop that into another section of Trek Trails. Some of those are 
private. Some of them are open to the public. I'm honestly, I'm not sure of of all the all the little idiosyncrasies to all those other places. But the stuff up in cable, I know that's all open to the public. I think it, it kind of depends on on where you go, but it's it's something that Trek realizes can't sell mountain bikes if you don't have a place to ride them. Road bikes are a little bit easier. There's a lot of places to go ride a road bike. You got bike paths, obviously the roads, all that sort of thing. You need to create something. It's kind of like that golf course mentality. You can sell a lot of golf clubs, but if you build golf courses, you're going to sell more golf clubs. So we're going to create some golf courses and, sorry, we're going to create more Trek trails and sell more Trek trail bikes. I was going to say, is uh, Trek moving into another of uh, another line of outdoor recreation uh, product with, right? Maybe maybe giving Callaway Golf Clubs a, a run for their money. <laughs> We're going to start making carbon fiber uh, golf club bags, so that's easier to carry around uh, the golf course. Yeah, what uh, what what level of carbon are you going to use in those bags? Is it going to be like seven hundred series? Or <laughs> I'm just kidding. For sure, the fast stuff. We'll put lots of stripes on it too. Stripes always make it faster, so. Custom painted through Project One, of course. Oh, yeah. That's a great idea, actually. Maybe, actually, maybe you should get into the uh, golf cart world. There you go. And that's where the Project One comes in is custom painted golf carts. Sounds like more fun to me. I, I I like where you're going with that. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I know. And when I, when I talked to uh, Bob Burns, he did, he did talk about how, you know, be having access for communities and especially for keeping things equitable for people that may not have access to trails is, is one of the important things with truck trails. And so I know that's, that's super important with your company. Um, one of the, it was one of the things with, with uh, cable. Well, even though that kind of seems off, the, you know, off the beaten path, they do have, you know, a bunch of schools up in that, up in that neighborhood. And it's already a very well-established, you know, community in terms of outdoor recreation with, with all the winter sports, and then obviously the ex- extensive Canva system that literally connects to the Trek trails at, at Telmark Resort. You know, the, the Shawamigan trails in general, Shawamigan has been a staple in the Midwest mountain bike scene for years and years. It draws a lot of people in, and the Telmark Lodge got torn down, I don't know, a while back. They had some black mold issues and other things, but they're trying to rebuild some of the destination appeal up there and, and helping out with these trails. It's a, it's a good thing. You know, they've got, they've got plenty of space for it, which is part of the problem. Like we talked about, you know, we've only got a certain amount of, of trails. I'd have a hard time fitting too much more trail into our little region of the world here, but you go up to a place like Telemark, holy moly, they got, you know, I don't know how many, acres they've got up there, but it's a really big number. Yeah. It's a, it's a good venue. Right. Yeah. I think everybody that goes up there, it's not the kind of place that you think of when you think like gravity assisted stuff, but I, I do know they're building the rock solid has been up there. They're building some gravity oriented trails uh, this summer. Yes, they are. In fact, my, literally my first day on the job working, working for rock solid was flagging trail for that project with Aaron Rodgers and John Shuby at rock solid. And so it's, right. it's a very unique site. It, you know, it's, I think obviously it wasn't viable as an Alpine ski resort. Cause that's what it was in, you know, previous to its current uh, iteration, but now with it being a, a legit, you know, four season, multi-use multi 
multi-recreation or multi-sport venue. I mean, they have a, they have a paved, which it's actually pretty insane, but they have a paved roller ski venue within this, at this venue as well. And I don't know how, you know, coming from the, the road construction world and paving world, I don't know how they got the paver and rollers in and out of some of the places that they paved this roller ski course. And it definitely would take expert roller skiers as well, because when we were riding this pavement on our mountain bikes, it was really, really, really fast. Wow. Cool. It sounds fun. I've never done the roller skiing thing. I've, there's quite a few people here at Trek that do that for exercise and, you know, ski in the wintertime. It's never been my jam. I, I prefer a chairlift and a set of downhill skis myself. Well, let's, let's, um, let's dig into your head in terms of, you know, the things you look for in trail communities. And I asked this question to pretty much all of my guests and the qualifier I put in is if you are forced to move from where you live today, what are some of the things you'd look for in a new community to move that you'd want to move to? All right. Um, well, we live in Wisconsin, so. <laughs> if, we, it might be uh, easier for you to make that decision than others. <laughs> you know, uh, so places that I've gone that are really fun, you know, um, there's just, there's obviously someplace like Marquette, I think has a lot to offer. It's a, it's a pretty cool community. Uh, it's still in the Midwest. If, if you're into that sort of thing, um, I, I, a lot of people call it the Colorado of the Midwest. I fully agree with that. They've got, they've got rocks, they've got, uh, loam, they've got nice hard packed dirt. It's pretty fantastic. Somewhere like Whistler, like obviously, holy cow, right? Whistler is amazing. The first time I went to Whistler, probably like, oh, five or so, oh, four, I forget. It just reminded me of being a little kid. And going to like a super badass BMX track for the first time that had everything you had wanted, you know, like a really big starting hill and a huge paved set of doubles and like, you know, just all the cool stuff, all the, the coolest pro jump section, you know, except you take that and you multi multiply it times like 174, right? So Whistler is amazing and it's really hard to argue with. You go just south of the border into like Bellingham, Washington. Holy cow another amazing place to ride you know it's just i've I've been fortunate enough to ride in so many different locations it it would be it'd be hard to pick just one you know but luckily we don't have to pick just one we can just go somewhere that we like and still reach out to all these other cool places you know yeah for sure and you know whistler and bellingham i've i've not been to either but from what i know you know obviously whistler is a resort but bellingham is more of that community right you know, like the, it's, the trails are like really ingrained within the actual right. community and the neighborhoods. Right. Well, I think, I think anybody would agree if you're going to be a Whistler person, you wouldn't live in Whistler. You'd live in, you'd live in Squamish or somewhere relatively close by, you know, you'd live on Vancouver Island or something like that, you know. How about New Zealand? Well, New Zealand is amazing. I don't know if they let a uh, chubby midwestern guy like myself moved there i don't know if i'm cool enough for new zealand that's a that's a, a pretty unique uh lifestyle over there for sure new zealand new zealand is amazing ticks almost all your boxes they they get the four seasons scenery is amazing there's not much wrong with new zealand in my mind you know it's uh it'd be a cool place we got to spend the couple three weeks there filming um the people that we met like it was a really 
really cool experience for sure. Yeah. And, and then the talent is just off the charts there. Oh yeah. No, it's yeah. It, it it's hard to compare it to, you know, it's, it's not like on the Whistler level cause Whistler is just, Whistler takes everything. It takes it up a few notches, you know, but just, I think a lot of it is just the amount of money in Whistler is ridiculous. You know, there's, I feel like there's a lot of millionaires that live in Whistler in Queensland or, you know, whatever, New Zealand in general. I don't think there's quite the level of money there. Or if it is, it's not as apparent, you know, but uh, there's just people that they want to get outside and have a good time. And that's a really great place to do it. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I've, I've said this multiple times on this show now, but it's to me, it's the quest of like trying to figure out a way to do the endless summer of like being, you know, in North America during our summer and then headed, headed below the equator, you know, to either like New Zealand or, or right. what I've coined as the most mountain bikingist uh, island on the planet, uh, which would be uh, Tasmania, which has multiple bike parks, large bike parks at that. Yeah. Well, I, I, I did, I just listened to your, our dog podcast this morning as I was warming up to come over here and he makes a good point about like Kelly McGarry and I, when we were in New Zealand, I've, I've been fortunate enough to go there three times and I've been to Whistler a bunch of times too for work and for pleasure both. But um, it's amazing how many similar faces you see in New Zealand and Whistler because there's a lot of people that do what Kelly did. You spend the New Zealand summer in New Zealand and then you come spend the Canadian summer in Whistler. And there was, uh, I can remember going to a coffee shop and two of the people working behind the counter is like, I know your faces from Whistler. Oh yeah. We summer there. And then we summer here and uh, you'd be on the chairlift and you'd recognize somebody else. Like, Oh, it's a thing. They've got something worked out. They got it in. They're like, you, like you called our dog. They're dirt gypsies and they just go back and forth and enjoy the Brown pow and love it. Yeah, for sure. Which I think originally might've been popularized by Alpine sports or surfing, right? 100%. Yes. Totally agree. Well, Vance, before we wrap this thing up, you got to throw out some closing comments and thank yous and, and whatnot. And is there anything that we didn't cover that you'd like to expose to the listeners of the trail effect and Trek trails? Cause we got to throw more Trek trails in there to keep people, you know, on their toes with the whole Trek trails thing. Right. No, I mean, I think we covered stuff pretty good. I could, I could, like I said, I could blather on about this stuff for hours. It's been, when I came up here to work at Trek, I didn't know what I was going to do. And I was like, man, it'd be cool. You know, like someday I could maybe work in the race shop. Like I, I'm pretty good. You know, I'm a, I'm a wrench. Like I've always fixed bikes and stuff and the opportunity presented itself and it worked out really good. You know, it's like, holy cow, this is amazing. And uh, when I'm trying to, you know, when I was thinking, what would I do after that? I've always helped out with the trails from day one and to be able to do that and make a, you know, make a living doing it has been, again, I consider myself pretty fortunate. You know, like I get to, I look forward to going to work almost every day and that's worth something for sure right there, you know? And, uh, I've just, I've I've really enjoyed it. I, I, I don't know how, what all I would do differently about it. I'm sure, uh, there's always room for improvement. But um, it's it's been a great ride, you know, and hopefully we'll keep on riding. Oh, for sure. And one of these days, I got to get myself down to uh, the Trek Trails in Waterloo. Agreed. And I need to get up to lacrosse. Yeah, and, we, uh, have a, we have a mutual friend and, and Josh just talked about, you know, hitting you up to go down there. And 
you know, you mentioned Josh Shively early on in the interview. Um, I've known Josh not as long as you because I have only known him since he moved to lacrosse, but that would have been in, I want to say 95 was when he moved here, when he kind of fell into the position of being a bike shop manager that was recently purchased by a person that was just getting into the bike shop business. Right. Yeah. When, uh, <laughs> that sounds about right. Cause uh, Josh and I worked together at the bike shop for uh, less than a year. He taught me a lot of things. Um, and unfortunately it sounds like he had a bad spill literally yesterday, huh? Got pretty skinned up. So shout out to Josh. Hope you get to feel better. If you're feeling better by the time you hear this. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's kind of funny how stuff like that goes full circle. You know, we've traveled a lot of the same places together. You know, Josh turned me on to Durango. Um, I don't know if you've ever ridden in Durango, Colorado, but that's another one of those places. It's just like, holy cow. Amazing. We're in Durango riding this high alpine ridge quick little story and there was this crazy little shed looked like an ice fishing shanty on top of this ridge and then uh a couple hundred yards or whatever past it there was this really weird um it looked like maybe the foundation that this shed used to sit on it sat at this kind of crazy angle and we're checking it out like oh man you could come along and hit this thing and you jump and there was this bushes that was like 20 30 feet out from this like right in the man's like, ah, you'd run into these bushes. And literally while we're sitting there chatting about this, Greg Herbold comes flying down the trail. I, I swear to God, we make just, you know, eye contact for a split second. He hits that thing and launches over that thing of shrubs that we were like, oh, you'd run, you'd run into these shrubs, you know? So off this little, uh, you know, six by eight foot little foundation platform, he hits that thing, just uses it as a lily pad slash launch pad and goes 35 feet through the air and just, you know, cloud of dust. And we're all standing there with our jaws on the ground, you know, and this is, you know, 95, somewhere 98. I don't even know what, you know, at that point, it, it was just like another little piece of mountain bike history just went by us at a high rate of speed, 10 feet in the air, you know, herbal, just flying, just amazing. And you get, yeah, I got to see that. It was super cool. <laughs> Another yeah. one of those things to forget. <laughs> yeah, literally. I mean, yeah, he was, I think, was he the first mountain bike downhill world champion? I think there's I a whole website so. made around that, but that's a whole different topic. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's cool to have, you know, as, as much as I'm into this sport, it's cool to be able to, uh, I've seen little pieces and snippets of history as I've gone along, you know? Yeah. And it's, you know, it's interesting. Well, you know, to bring it back to Shively, you know, you mentioned his crash and he, it was, I, I mean, I wasn't there, but I painting the picture is, you know, hit, hit concrete at 45 miles an hour going downhill. And I I texted him last night after I'd found out about it, you know, wishing him well and whatnot. And his response was, yeah, I just got done with band practice. Everything seems to be working pretty good. Right. Right. Well, that's, you know, that's why I don't ride road bikes right there. <laughs> yeah. And he's and to put that into context, you know, for those that don't know Josh Shively, he's a drummer, you know, so you got, it's a full body, you know, type of band activity. Right. I know he's warming up. They have a big show here in lacrosse uh, tomorrow, actually tomorrow night, downtown at the, at the band shell. And he plays with the remainders, which is a, you know, rock and eighties, nineties, well, seventies, eighties and nineties rock and roll band. And he's, he literally like slays it on the drums for that band. And he's an awesome human. Oh, he's, one of, yeah. Like one, one of, of the, the 
nicest people I've ever had the fortune of interacting with. Just awesome, awesome person. Yeah, for sure. Like he got the NICA program started here in lacrosse and grew, grew that. And then just, he recently retired from that last season was his last season, but he made sure that there's, you know, he, he has, he has good people that, that came in behind him. And I mean, just honestly, like he's the nicest guy you'll ever meet on the trail. And I don't even say that to be, I'm not even exaggerating that one bit. No, I would agree with you. He's one of the, one of the best humans I've ever met. <laughs> well, Vance, I think it's back to work for us, eh? Well, you might not go outside at least because it is probably about a hundred by now. <laughs> it's pretty warm. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm, I'm doing other things this afternoon. So, well, I really appreciate you taking some time out of your day and us learning more about you and Trek trails and the three, the C3 project and all the stuff that Trek's involved with, because clearly, you know, Trek means a lot to this industry and they've done a lot for this industry and they will continue to do a lot for this industry. So that's incredible. And you're helping with that. So thank you very much. Thank you. I appreciate it. I'm happy to, happy to blather on about it. Thank you for listening. If you like what you've heard, please take the time to share these shows with others. Sharing these shows will help create awareness of both the guests who have taken the time to be on the show and the podcast series itself. Also, if you're new to the Trail Effect Podcast, check out our ever-expanding library of episodes. If you listen to the Trail Effect Podcast on Apple or Spotify, please don't forget to leave a rating and review, as this is one of the best ways to show your support for the Trail Effect Podcast. Also, don't forget to check out Cooley Creative at www.dojustsendit.com. For additional ways to help support the Trail Effect Podcast, check out the Affiliate Links tab at the Trail Effect website, where you'll find links to Kettle Mountain Apparel, Worldwide Cyclery, and Trail One Components. By using the affiliate links found at www.traileffectpodcast.com, a small commission will come back to the podcast, which will help keep this thing going. This podcast has been edited and produced by Evolution Trail Services. Thank you again for listening. Mm-hmm.